You can be seated. Uh, my name is Jesse, and I come uh, again uh, week two as a missionary that has gone to a camp. I went to a different camp. Uh, we went to a kids' camp. Let me tell you, uh, kids' camp, third through fifth grade, is a different beast than youth camp, sixth through twelfth grade. It's a completely different speed. There are more like, where did that kid wander off to? And they're up in a tree chasing a squirrel. Um, the food is good. Uh, the music was loud. There were a lot of motions in the music. Maybe we can talk to Jason and, and the rest of the team up here, like we can do like little there's this one song where they would do like oh oh is like the quieter oh you'd get down real low and would you guys like to worship that way you get real low oh and then oh big oh um, kids camp was was different but what's interesting is that the gospel and the message is the same they taught the same thing to our children third through fifth grade that they were teaching through our sixth through twelfth grade and I'm happy to report that uh, at least four of our kids that I'm aware of uh, decided to say yes to Jesus for the first time this past week which is huge that is worthy of praise. I'm excited. And uh, I just, I, I, I think that what we're going to start seeing is more and more people consider the way that I've decided is leading me to destruction, leading me to pain, but God's way is so much better. And the more we proclaim his way, Jesus's way, uh, the more people are going to turn to life and find hope. So uh, I'm excited. Uh, I think that my missionary journeys to camps are finished for at least a few weeks, uh, but it was, a, it was a lot of fun. And I'll tell you this, uh, I was more rested uh, the last day of kids camp than I was the first day of youth camp. Like I just came out of it, just rejuvenated. I don't know what that says about me. Uh, maybe maybe I'm, I'm got like reverse batteries or something, but that's, that's the truth. That's where we were. Um, if you've been here for the last few weeks, we've been in a series that we're going to finish today called How to Church. And the, the premise of it is this, is that we have, uh, we're, we've entered into, or at least on the decline side of the COVID and the, the, the quarantining parts of it at least, uh, and, and we want to be very careful and very deliberate that as we move into this new phase and we get back in touch with people and we get back in touch with, you know, being a around other people uh, they, that was dangerous a year before, and now we're doing that again, that we church well. And so we've been looking at the book of Acts because the book of Acts records the first church that ever churched before there were any books on how to do it, before anyone said, I am an expert on churching, let me tell you all the ways. I'm an expert on growing the church, let me tell you how to do it. I'm an expert on preaching sermons, let me how to do it. Before anybody was an expert on anything, the first church was like, I don't know, let's figure this out. And they did remarkably well. Over and over again, people tried to stand in the way of the church, what they called the way, and they wanted to stop what was happening, and over and over again, they overcame. And over and over again, you see the gospel move from, from like a smaller territory to larger territories, despite the efforts of people to stop it, despite the consequences it was to follow Jesus. You and I are standing in a Christian church today because the gospel has meant something to every generation for the last 2,000 years and has changed lives. To put it in the words of the song we just sang, for the last 2,000 years, every generation up to this point and continuing forward has said, you know what, the Lord's way is better than my way. I'm going to choose his way over mine. And as they churched over the last 2,000 years, um, they, they made some, some, some key uh, decisions. We, what we've looked at over the last few weeks um, is that the first church, they had a relentless focus on Jesus, specifically that this Jesus, the one whom they crucified on the cross, the one whom they found guilty, actually is resurrected, and he is alive and well. And they focused on Jesus, that no matter what, if Jesus is alive, these people people can't do anything to me that means anything. 
Like, if Jesus can beat death, what are you going to do to me? Kill me? I already know the way out of that. Resurrection's out of that. So you, you, you have no power over me. And they, they focused on Jesus and they focused on each other. The first church that we read in the book of Acts, they would have people of all different categories in their the building isn't the right word, in their gathering, um, people of different colors, people of different languages, people of different socioeconomic, people of different powers. Some people were born you know, broken and poor. Some people were born rich and never knew. They, they literally had a silver spoon in their mouth being fed the baby food. And, and all of these people came together and they said, if we're going to wave the banner of Jesus, we're going to have all things in common. My wealth becomes the resource for me to solve your problems and to help you overcome what you have. And so people were bringing their problems, people were bringing their resources, and they had everything in common. And then we read that the first church was full of the Holy Spirit. And, and specifically, the author, Luke, here, uh, he says uh, over and over again, when they were filled with the Spirit, that they were filled with joy and courage. Those are the two kind of descriptors that they had when, when someone was filled with the Spirit. That they weren't afraid to say the truth. They weren't afraid to stand up. And, and then as they said it, they, they weren't just like grumpy about it. Anybody know some Christians that are like, the Lord is good today. They sound like Eeyore as they're talking about it. They have no joy at all. Well, these people, the first people who ever church, they were both full of courage to say the truth, but they're also full of joy as they said it. What they found was a hope that was sustaining and life-giving, and it, it, it took all that they had to not tell other people. They, they, I may be killed for telling you this, but let me tell you, this thing, this message of Jesus has transformed my life. Do you want some of this? And the more that people saw the obedience of the first disciples, the more people saw what the first disciples were doing, the more they wanted to be a part of that. They fearlessly pursued hope, no matter, no matter what was going on, even though they were being threatened to be punished. And then last week we saw the first Christian die. They didn't stop hoping. They did run uh, after the first Christian died. They all scattered, sure, but when they scattered, they brought the hope and they brought the gospel with them. They continued to talk about Jesus. Uh, we also saw last week that the first church that ever church ran into a problem in their church. You ever been to a church and there was like a little argument? Maybe some people weren't being treated right, something like that. Well, the first church in the first year of them churching, they, they had that problem. They, some people weren't being treated right. And so someone said, hey, we have a problem. And the apostles, the leaders of the church said, you're right, that is a problem. And if the gospel is true, that problem shouldn't exist. And so they answered the problem by giving away some ministry, equipping other people to serve. And then the gospel went from adding day by day to multiplying. We saw that last week and uh, I made my math joke. I'm not good at adding or multiplying, but I know one is faster than the other. They multiplied as they did that. As they gave ministry away and as they continued to talk about Jesus, they multiplied. And they really believed, not, not, not in some like, philosophical change of mind that, that it just changed the way you're thinking or, you know, just stop doing these 10 things. They really believed that people who submitted their life to Jesus had a real life change, that they really came out on the other side of that commitment, a new creature, a new person. Now, I've announced in the last two weeks, eight, uh, I know of nine uh, people from Carpenter's Way in the last two weeks that have said yes for the very first time that Jesus is Lord. Nine. Okay, that many, nine. I, I had to make sure I had enough fingers. I don't know why the math didn't work out in my head. Nine people said yes to Jesus. And the first church that ever church believed that upon that first commitment of saying yes to Jesus as Lord, a real life change occurs. 
And on the backside of that, this person is a new creation being created into the likeness of Jesus to be more and more like Jesus as they go on. And we have in our midst at Carpenter's Way that I know of nine people who have said that. They believe that it really changes lives. What I want to do today as we close out our series, How to Church, um, we've been looking at, you know, uh, it, and added upon that day 3,000 people, and then a little while later, 5,000, and then it went from adding to multiplying. It was always in these big, like, uh, 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 bird's eye view of the growth of the church people saying yes to Jesus. But we haven't seen any, like, individual people. Like, what does that look like for the individual person to say yes to Jesus for the first time and have a real life change? And so as we close out this series, I want to look at three people. Uh, They're all stacked. The way that Luke wrote the book of Acts is that these three people are together. Um, The the three people are this, uh, Saul, we'll we'll come back to Saul that we we looked at last week, Uh, a man uh, named uh, Simon. He's a magician. He's like pulling rabbits out of his hat. And uh, a man that doesn't have a name, but he's an Ethiopian government official. He's called the Ethiopian eunuch. And he is extremely powerful and extremely curious about God. So let's look at that together. Uh, I'm going to be in Acts chapter 8. It'll be on the screens behind me or for our uh, live stream, uh, if all is going well. Right now you're seeing this on the bottom of your screen through the magic of technology. And so we begin in verse one, and Saul approved of his execution. So remember where we just left off. If you were here last week, you may remember that a man was killed for the first time and in the midst was holding the coats of all the people throwing the rocks. And that man holding the coats, his name was Saul. And Saul approved, it says, of his execution. And there arose that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. They've never been persecuted in this way. No one's ever died for raising their hand for Jesus until this moment. And it says, and they were scattered throughout all the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Behind, in verse 2, it says, devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. Great lamentation means that they mourned and they cried. They were extremely sad that their brother Stephen uh, died for this. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. You have uh, two things happening. Christianity is growing and spreading. And at the same time, Saul, who saw his church, the, the uh, synagogue of the freedmen, oh, this is how we do things? We attack people who talk about Jesus and we don't like what they say? That he began to kind of take up that hobby. And he went around ravaging the church. And as this happens, uh, Philip, one of the, uh, the deacons that were selected last week, uh, he goes off into Samaria. Like he runs and he books it. And he's like, I'm, I got to get out of here. He goes to Samaria. Jesus spent some, some time in Samaria. You may remember Jesus talking to the woman at the well uh, and, and explaining all the things of the kingdom to her. Uh, Jesus told her, uh, uh, the father is seeking those whom will worship him in spirit and truth. Uh, she had some really uh, big misunderstandings about God. And at the end of that passage in John, We see that Jesus spent many days in Samaria just hanging around talking. They were very interested in what Jesus has to say. And now Philip shows up with the message of Jesus, um, and and he's he's telling all of them, and they all pay attention. They're really interested in what he has to say. In verse 9, we're going to meet a man named Simon. It says, but there was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. You always like 
people who walk around talking about how great they are, don't you? Like, it's, just a, it's just a fact of life. that You can be in the other side of the world in the Middle Eastern country of Samaria, and there's going to be someone there who's pointing at themselves saying, I'm kind of a big deal, why don't you hang out with me? That's Simon. I'm kind of a big deal. He's somebody great. And everybody listened to him. It says in verse 10, they all paid attention to him from the least to the greatest, saying, this man is the power of God that is called great. I have no idea what he did. I think that he had like little card tricks. He's like, hey, uh, God gave me some super secret powers and he like pulled an ace out of your hat. And you're like, oh, wow, I should listen to you, I guess. They didn't understand sleights of hand. Uh, I'm pretty much a big deal. And everybody's like, yeah, he is pretty much a big deal. It says in verse 11, and they paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. It's like, wow, you want flowers? You need flowers for your wife? And he pulls flowers out of your sleeve uh, because that's, he's, he's the David Copperfield of Samaria. But when they believed Philip, as he preached the good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized. There's something interesting that happens every time someone believes in Jesus, the next step they go is to be baptized. Both men and women, even Simon, verse 13, even Simon himself believed, and after being baptized, he continued with Philip. And seeing signs and great uh, miracles performed, he was amazed. So here's Simon through his like, you know, slights of hand has been tricking everybody into thinking he's kind of a big deal. But when he sees real life change through Jesus, he submits his life to Jesus. He accepts Jesus. He too is baptized and he's the one who is amazed. Uh, it's not part of what I'm going to read now, but you know, for your reading later, you can read how Simon is later amazed that someone is healed. He's like, hey, you know what I could do with power like that? Why don't you teach me how to do that? I'll, just, I'll be powerful again. Uh, and he gets uh, corrected. Even Christians sometimes get lost in the power trip mode. But here's Simon, a man who has this great reputation for being powerful and being something bigger than what he is. And he hears the message of Jesus and he says, no, 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 I'm no longer amazed at what I can do. I'm amazed at who this Jesus is. So let me ask the question before we go on to the next guy. What, what changes someone who is so entrenched in their view that everybody says that they're a big deal? What can change them to realizing I am nothing compared to what Jesus will accomplish. I'm nothing compared to what Jesus is doing around me. He didn't fight it. He didn't, he didn't go up against it. He just, like, he's amazed at what Jesus is doing. Let's go on to the next guy. Uh, down in verse 26, um, you have this, uh, this Ethiopian eunuch. He's a government official, um, and he is not a dumb man. Let me, let me, I'll just read it, and then I'll explain what he's doing. So it's in verse 26, now an angel of the uh, Lord said to Philip, rise and go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. That was a pretty long trip to get from Samaria to that road. This is a desert place. And he rose and went, and there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning, seated in his chariot, and he was reading the prophet Isaiah. Uh, to this guy, uh, he would be, I guess, kind of like us. We, we, we have public education. We're pretty, pretty smart people. We're not easily fooled, uh, as Americans, I mean. And, and the, the Ethiopian eunuch, uh, he has gone to Jerusalem to worship. He's interested in God. He wants to know things about God. And he even has scripture in front of him. He's reading Isaiah. Now, to be able to read is, is highly intelligent at that time. But he, he's interested in God. And yet, none of it makes any sense at all. 
Anybody ever go to church and you do your best to learn about God? You want to hear about God? You want to read your Bible? And everything you do is like, I just, I, I wish I knew, understood God a little bit better. And it just, it's like, it's, you might as well be speaking Greek, which he actually was, but that's neither here nor there. Uh, it, it, it just doesn't register. It doesn't, it doesn't register. Uh, Simon, he did not care anything about God until he saw the people of God doing something. But this guy, he has spent his life, he's spending his own wealth and his own time traveling to Jerusalem to learn about God, and it just doesn't register. How's, how is he going to know? The flip of that is that you have Philip, who is a follower of Jesus, who has run to Samaria to hide from the persecution that Saul is doing over in, in Jerusalem. And now he has to pass from Samaria, which is north of Jerusalem, to this road, which is south of Jerusalem. He has to like go through Saul's territory where things are really hairy. Why does he go there? Philip believes that God is calling him there. Philip believes, like in his prayer time or whatever, that God is calling him to be on mission to go from this point to this point. What would happen... If Philip says, no, nah, that's, that's not for me. What would happen if, if God is calling you to do something, to go to a place that may or may not be dangerous, a place that may or may not make sense to you, and you're like, I just, no, I'm, that's, that's not for me. What happens with Philip, you see this guy on, on, a, on a micro level do what the church has been doing for the last several chapters is just, I don't know what God is calling us to do, but when I feel God leading me to do a thing, I'm, I'm going to do that thing. He feels God calling him to go to this road, and so he goes, and he finds uh, our, our Ethiopian man. He, he finds him reading the prophet Isaiah, and it says in verse 29, And the Spirit said to Philip, Go over there and join this chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, Do you understand what you're reading? <laughs> Do you, hey, uh, you're reading the, the old King James there, brother. Do you understand what you're reading? He's like, No, I, I don't. I don't know what's going on at all. He says, he says in verse 31, and he said to him, how can I unless someone guides me? And it says, and he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now the passage of scripture that he was reading was this. So he goes back and rereads the thing he had just finished. And this is what he was reading in Isaiah. Like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter. And like a lamb before its shears is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. It says, the eunuch said to Philip, about whom I ask you, does this prophet say this? About himself or about someone else? He's like, I don't even understand this. This is just words. Who's he talking about? Then Philip opened his mouth and beginning with the scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. And as they were going along the road, they came to some water and the eunuch said, see here is water. Hey, look, I found some water. It's right here. What prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop, and they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized them. And when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away, uh, and, and he goes on to, to the next mission. But, but you have the, the eunuch, it required someone explaining to him the things of God. Now, let me ask you a question real quick. Um, who here, uh, you don't have to raise your hands, uh, but, but who, here, who here is a follower of Jesus, who here is a Christian, Okay, and, and, and which of you uh, became that follower of Jesus completely independent of your own? You were just sitting there looking at a tree. Uh, you saw a bird fly by and you're like, oh man, I need to pray to Jesus right quick. Like it just it popped in your head through, through your own wisdom and your own knowledge. None of us. 
For the last 2,000 years, the only way people became followers of Jesus is that a current follower of Jesus partnered up next to someone who was interested in following Jesus and said, let me explain to you what it was to follow Jesus. Let me explain to you who Jesus is. And then this person either trusted or not. You, as an individual, trusted Jesus because someone explained it. The, the Ethiopian, he says, how, how can I? How can I understand any of this? How can I understand what this guy's even talking about unless someone explains it to me? So the first church that ever church partnered up with people who were interested in hearing about Jesus, and they would explain to them everything that they knew. Philip, as far as we know, never met Jesus face to face, and so he too is like a second generation Christian, and now he's made a third generation Christian because the gospel moves forward through the obedience of the followers of Jesus. The gospel is only going to move forward in our community if we, the Christians in our community, are obedient to share it with others despite the threat that may or may not be there. Now, in the next chapter, we get back to Saul. Saul is a big character in all of Scripture. Um, there is a, uh, like a Sunday school urban legend that um, God changed Saul's name to Paul. You remember that? Who, who's heard that? I, I remember hearing that. I was in college. And I was told that it was an urban legend, that God never changed Saul's name to Paul. And I'm like, dude, you are lying to me. This college professor whom I'm paying to teach me things is lying to me. And I spent the next hour trying to look it up. It's not in the Bible. Just believe me, if you want to look it up later, have fun. Uh, You're not going to find in the Bible that there's this moment where God changes, you are now called Paul. It never happens. He just changes his name from Saul to Paul. There's some theories as to why. Um, Most likely, it's because when he's walking around Hebrew people, he uses his Hebrew name Saul. And when he's walking around Greek and Roman people, he uses his Greek name Paul. He just had two names. If if you're in a multicultural environment, sometimes you see people, they'll, they'll like get a reduced version of their name because it's easier for them. There's some other theories as why, but Here's Saul. He is going to one day uh, be a follower of Jesus. And he's going to one day write more than half of the New Testament. Almost everything we know about how to church and how to be a follower of Jesus is going to come because this man that we're about to read about decided to write down the things that God was teaching him. This man will go to prison multiple times for the name of Jesus. This man will be threatened to be killed, and he was stoned and left for dead at least one time and stoned multiple times other than that. This guy has more bruises and scars by the end of his life than any of us will ever know, all because he continues to raise his hand for the name of Jesus. But right here, right now, he hates everything about followers of Jesus. In fact, if I have to be honest with you, if we had one of these guys roaming around Mid-County right here, I would be like, hey guys, go like share the gospel with your friends and neighbors, but watch out for that Saul guy. He's like running around with a machete. Like the guy is nuts. Be careful around him. I don't know. But here, here's the question. Can, can the gospel of Jesus really change anyone? Does it really change anyone and everyone? Or is it just like really good people who are basically good already or people who are basically interested in God already? Here's Saul. But Saul, breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, that's what they called Christians at the time, was followers of the way. I really like that. Maybe we should bring that back. Belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. History says that um, from the moment where he saw Stephen stoned to this moment right now, about three years have passed. For the last three years, a early 20-something-year-old Saul has just 
ravaged the church. He's gone from place to place doing really mean, awful things for anybody who raised their hand uh, to Jesus. That's a long time. Anybody have about a three-year window in your life where you made a ton of decisions that you regret and you just carry that with you for the rest of your life? That's homeboy right here. This is, this is, he's in the middle of it. Uh, I'm going to pause. Uh, I'm going to put my finger right here because at the end of Acts, uh, Paul is in, in, in prison. He's being interrogated. And he actually talks about some of the things that he does in his testimony, his defense <laughs> for going to jail. This is a terrible defense. Uh, his defense for going to jail is he's going to tell them all the wicked, evil things he did so that he can tell them what he was transformed from, right? And so in Acts chapter 22, you can read it on the screens uh, with me, or you can turn there if you have your Bible. He says, he says, brothers, he's given a testimony, brothers and fathers, hear the defense that I now make before you. And when they heard that he was addressing them in, in the Hebrew language, remember he was multilingual, uh, he, he, could, he could switch tongues pretty quick. So now he's using their native tongue. Uh, in the Hebrew language, they became even more quiet. And he said, I am a Jew born in Tarsus of Cilicia, but brought up in this city, which was Jerusalem, educated at the feet of Gamaliel, we met him a few weeks ago, according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers, being zealous for God, as you all are to this day, I persecuted this way to the death. How? How did you persecute them? Binding and delivering to prison both men and women. As the high priest and the whole council of elders, elders can bear me witness from them, I received letters to the brothers and I journeyed toward Damascus to take those also who were there and bring them in bonds to Jerusalem to be punished. It's like, I, I killed people, I grabbed men and I grabbed women and I drug them to Jerusalem against their will. They would be having church over there and I would walk in and I would have all of my people with me and we would just grab whoever would not say they were not a follower of Jesus, whoever raised their hand for Jesus, we would grab them and we would take them away, tie them up and drag them back to Jerusalem where they were tried, they were tortured or killed. And he said, that's what I did. That's, that's, a, that's Saul giving a, a testimony in court. Here's, here's how he changes. So this is in verse three, uh, I'm back in chapter nine, verse three. Now as... He went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him, and falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him. Now, if you have your Bible, up here it's all in white, but my, I have red letter Bibles. Anybody have red letters right here? Yes, yeah, red letters. Red letters means that Jesus is speaking. You know, Saul, he's doing this thing that he thinks he's doing for God. He's completely misunderstood the ways of God, and he's mad at people who are followers of Jesus for trusting in the name of Jesus. As far as he knows, Jesus is a liar and all the followers of Jesus need to be stopped. Yeah, there's thousands of people who are following Jesus. I'm going to go over there and I'm going to get them. I'm going to drag them one by one. I'm going to get all thousands of them and I'm going to bring them back to Jerusalem to pay for the crime. And as he's on his way, red letters happen. Jesus, the one whom he thinks is the enemy, is speaking. He says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? I don't even know who this guy is. But he says, Lord, which is super respectful. If a ball of light uh, is speaking to me on the road, I'm going to show some respect, I think. And that's what Saul does. And he says, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. I, I love that in this, this is something good for, if you're a Christian and it's kind of hard for you to be a follower of Jesus, you're like, people treat me badly. Uh, do you know that Jesus takes personal offense that they treat you badly for his name? He doesn't say, Saul, Saul, you're persecuting people who follow me. No, he's saying, Saul, you're persecuting me. Every time he drugged someone off to prison, every time, every time he walked into a church service and he arrested someone, Jesus took it as a personal offense to himself. He says, you're persecuting me. 
but rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. Go ahead and go where you are going. You are already going to Damascus. Go there and wait for the next message. You're going to be told what to do. It says, the men who were traveling with him stood speechless. I bet they did. Hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were open, he saw nothing. He's lost his sight. So they led him by the hand. This man who was strong, everything about him was strength. Everything about him looked powerful. He was marching 10 minutes before this, and now he's blind and weak and feeble. He can't get anywhere unless someone leads him. And the people who are with him take him by the hand and lead him. It says in verse 9, And for three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. Saul has had this moment with Jesus, and he doesn't understand any of it. He's now, he was strong, and he's now been brought to his weakest moment because Jesus has now interrupted what he was going to do. What he was going to do was evil, and Jesus has interrupted it, and now he's weak. And for three days, count them, one, two, three, he's just sitting in silence. What do I do? I asked earlier if anybody had a three-year span where, like, it's just a stack of regrets you didn't wish were there. Paul or Saul here uh, has a three-year span of regrets that have been stacking up, and now he has three days of just, uh, you know that moment where you're just staring at the ceiling and no answers are coming down, and you're kind of scared. Things that used to make sense don't make sense anymore. Uh, you're praying. I'm sure he's praying to God the best he knows how he's blind. His friends who were like, hey, are we going to kill someone? Are now like, I don't know. Like, is he ever going to see again? Uh, it, there's this three-day window of just, what am I doing? So many of us are so scared when we enter those, those seasons, those windows of, what am I doing? What we don't know is that behind the scenes, and what Saul didn't know is that behind the scenes, God is talking to somebody else on his behalf. There's a man we're going to meet named Ananias. As far as we know, like this is the only time this, Anna, there are other Ananias, Ananiases? I don't know. Somebody, somebody good with Greek can help me with that later. Uh, there are other Ananiases mentioned in scripture, but as far as we know, this is the only Ananias of Damascus, and he's a follower of Jesus. And for three days, Saul is sitting in silence, wondering, what is God doing to me right now? He's wrecked every plan I've ever had, and I was only doing that for God to begin with. And here I am in three days of silence, and for those three days, God is working across town on somebody else. Let's read what happens here. Now, there was a disciple in Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, here I am, Lord. You have to love the obedience of a follower of Jesus, a follower of God. You see this in Isaiah. You see this in the other uh, prophets where God speaks to them, and, and the response isn't like, oh, I don't know. I'm scared. It's like, here I am. There's this, there's this willingness to be used by God of a, of a dedicated follower of Jesus. Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, uh, I've got some, I got some instructions for you. The Lord said to him, rise and go to the street called straight. It's just like, you have, I, I don't know, maybe, maybe they named one straight, one crooked, and one like Fourth Avenue. I don't know, but the street called straight. And at the house of Judas, so you go to the street called straight, go to the house of Judas, check, check, okay. Look for a man of Tarsus named Saul, for behold, he is praying and he has seen a vision, uh, a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. Uh, anybody want to take a guess as to whether or not Ananias knows who Saul is? Yeah, because Saul has a, has a strong reputation. Saul made it his like, job to have a reputation for being tough and in control. Uh, Ananias knows the reputation of Saul, and so he wants to have a little conversation with Jesus off to the side. You ever really scared to do something that God asks you to do? Like, hey, God, are you sure? Am I hearing you right? And you check your antennas a little bit, make sure you have a good reception. 
He says, uh, but Ananias answered, Lord, um, hang on just a second. I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. Like the reputation of why Saul was coming, the church already knew that a man was coming with papers to arrest them. And now Ananias gets a vision from the Lord like, yeah, he made it to town. I don't know if you heard, but he's street called straight, house of Judas. I want you to go pray for him. Go tell him about me. Are you sure? I've heard, I've heard this. But the Lord says in verse 15, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. I bet Ananias was like, oh yeah, okay. <laughs> We're bringing a message of suffering now. I, I like what you're doing here, God. I see, I see, I'm picking up what you're laying down, God. Uh, oh, you want to punish this guy? Okay, okay, yeah, we can do that. I, I, I'm willing to bet uh, Ananias, uh, to know all of these things about Saul, has to know some people who have been killed because of Saul, has to know some people who were treated badly because of Saul, some people who maybe were friends of his, who he no longer gets to see because of Saul, and now he's being told by God to bring this life-saving message to Saul. And he's like, hey, hang on just a second. Are you sure, God? For three days, Saul's sitting in silence. He hasn't heard from God. He doesn't know what's going on. And for three days, Ananias is being told, hey, go, I, I don't read this here, but I wonder if there were other disciples who were told to go talk to Saul. And they're like, I'm not going to do it. Just out of sheer disobedience, didn't do it. You know what would have happened if Ananias didn't go? Our Bibles would be a lot shorter. We would be missing everything right here. Uh, almost every page of this wouldn't be put in our Bible because the man that he's supposed to go talk to ends up writing this piece right here. I want you to go and I want you to tell him about me. He's going to be my instrument. He's going to carry my name to the Gentiles and I'm going to tell him how much he's going to suffer for my name. So Ananias being obedient, it says, that, so Ananias departed and entered the house and laying his hands on him, he said, brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized and taking food he was strengthened. And remember he hasn't eaten or drank. He's been pretty upset for the last three days. And all of a sudden like he's strengthened. And it says that immediately, it says for some days he was with the disciples at Damascus. Saul stays and he, he learns uh, what it is to be a follower of Jesus from these disciples. And immediately in verse 20, he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue saying, he is the son of God, which if that's not true is a blasphemy. And it's the very reason, it's the very message that Saul was so mad about is that others would claim that Jesus was the son of God. What takes a murdering man who's mad at people for saying that Jesus is the Son of God, to within a three-day span declare in the, the synagogue Jesus is the Son of God, the very thing that he would find other people guilty of before that. The, the only thing is, is the name of Jesus actually has real power to transform lives. That's the only explanation. What changes a magician with all the power in the world to convince his friends of anything that he wants to say Jesus is worth more than my control and my power? Simon the magician converts to Christianity because Jesus really transformed lives. The Ethiopian eunuch who has all the money in the world and could surround himself with, with a group of people who, who would, would say to him, hey, you're okay, God loves you, who is interested in God. What, what makes a man who's that interested in God stop what he's doing and be baptized? 
Well, it's whenever he finds someone who can connect the dots between the, what he believes about God and what he hopes about God. Oh, Jesus. Jesus connects the dots. He makes, he makes it possible for me to have a right relationship with my God. And what changes a murdering Saul who is so convinced that his way is right to do a 180 turn to the way that he thought was wrong and say, no, actually, that's been right this whole time. I'm so sorry. I'm now a follower of Jesus. Well, Jesus has real power to save. The message I want for you as, as we close out our series, the first church that ever churched over and over again had people who thought their way was right, wanted to follow God, or otherwise just had a life, a reputation that they could have kept intact. One by one, submit to the lordship of Jesus, and their lives were changed forever. You're sitting here because that happened to someone before you, and they were able to tell you because that happened to somebody before you. The person who told me told me on my front porch because he was just obedient to God to come and tell me about Jesus, of whom I never knew about. I knew about God, and I believed that like the, the, the clouds were a sidewalks, but nobody ever explained to me Jesus and like what was going on there. This man showed up on my front porch and told me about Jesus. Who, who should we go tell about Jesus? That man, Saul, uh, he, he, he writes a letter to the Romans, um, the Romans, they think like you and I do. They're very Greek in their thought. Uh, we learned how to think from the Romans. And he tries to explain to them Jesus. Let me, this is an older man now, Paul, who's writing this. And, and, and I just want to pull a few passages out as he explains to the Romans what it means to be a follower of Jesus. He says in Romans 3.23, he says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. He says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. He, he looks around, he says, I've messed up, you've messed up, everybody's messed up, we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Saul's so like, I, I, I believed what I was doing was right and then I realized I was wrong. I realized I was living wrongly and I sinned against God. I've fallen short of the glory of God. He says later in Romans, he says, for the wages of sin, what's the big deal with sin? He says, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. He uses our Lord because now he's a follower of Jesus. He says, what I was doing was sinful and what I've earned as a result of my sin and my mistake, wages is a paycheck. What I've earned is death. I deserve to die for what I've done and we've all made these mistakes. And he says, there's, there's death in the way that we were choosing to live, but there's life in the lordship of Jesus, the free gift of Jesus. This is really terrifying news, right, Paul? I mean, like, what are we supposed to do? Like, do we have to get our life right before God accepts us? Do we have to put on their good face and show up in the church and, like, stop cussing so much and, like, be nicer to our spouse? Do we have to get everything right before Jesus will even talk to us? Well, he says in Romans 5, 8, he says, God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So the wonderful news about Jesus, and maybe it's the only religion that does this, is that the God of this religion, Jesus, doesn't wait for his followers to figure him out before he pays the price. While we were still sinners, Jesus is like, I'm going to the cross because it's the only way that my people, you, can have peace with God. And he goes to the cross. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That's amazing news. While Paul was still murdering Christians, Jesus gave him a chance. 
While we were still living in the wrongest parts of our sin, Jesus gives us a chance. So what do we do with that? What, what, what message do you bring to your friend who you feel like is more like Saul than he is like, uh, like the Ethiopian? Uh, you, you've got friends that you're like, they're so far from God. Is it even possible for them to have real change? Romans 10.9 says, because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, you confess with your mouth that he is Lord. To be Lord means that he's the boss. He, he, he can tell you anything he wants because he's Lord, and, and we follow it because he's Lord. He's the boss, not me. I'm not Lord. I'm terrible Lord. I made a terrible mistake with my life. But if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Real life change through Jesus is possible, and the man who wrote these words was a murderer. That means that there's really good hope for your in-law or your, you know, your brother or your, you know, that person who's really a jerk to you sometimes. There's a lot of hope. Because what we're talking about isn't just a nicer way of treating people. Christianity is, it's got some rules in it. It's got some, like, some nice, like, I treat my wife better because I'm a Christian than I would if I wasn't a Christian. That's all fine and great, but it, Christianity at its heart is about real change because people said, Jesus, I'm choosing your way over my way. Will you transform me? And Jesus, for the last 2,000 years, has said yes over and over and over again. If we're going to church well in Mid-County, it's going to be because we take this message of life change out of this building. We get out there, and we find people who are looking for God, far from God, really wrong about God, maybe curious about God, just wherever they are and whoever they are. We find them and we say, there's a real change possible. Can I tell you about Jesus? And we bring hope, we bring transformation, we bring healing, not because of how strong we are and how powerful we are, but because we were transformed by Jesus and so can they. I want to pray. Uh, as we close out, and there will be a cue at the end. But if what I'll say, if as we pray, Scripture says that that if we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in our heart that God raised Him from the dead, we will be saved. And if you're sitting here and you're someone who's like, you know what, nobody has ever explained Jesus to me, or People have explained Jesus to me, but you know, I like my way better. But you know, it's time. It's time for me to confess Him as Lord. If if that's you, um. I'll be, I'll be at the back and we, we, can, we can chat. For the rest of us who are already followers of Jesus, the only way this message continues is that we're obedient to bring it out to the places that God is calling us to be, even if it's in those really, like, to the souls in our life. And we teach them about the hope of Jesus. Let me pray. Father, we come to you um, thinking that your word so clearly paints life change. And as we read uh, about the lives these men who have trusted you and, and, and you've used in big and powerful ways, Lord, we see ourselves in some of that. We see, we see ourselves regret. We see ourselves sin that, that needs forgiveness. We see in ourselves sometimes brokenness and we see in ourselves sometimes misunderstandings and silence days and weeks where we don't know what's going on. But Father, your way leads to hope. Your way leads to peace. Lord, I thank you that you never leave us in our struggle alone. Um, I thank you, Father, that you've always got a rescue. I thank you, Lord, that you did not wait for us to become perfect before you sent Jesus. I pray, Lord, that for those of us who are here that need to do some business with Jesus, Father, we won't leave until we do, and that we would see transformation in our lives and transformation in our families. 
Lord, we thank you that your word teaches us this and that we can, that we can rest on, on your authority and not what we're feeling in the moment. May we be obedient as Ananias. May we be obedient as Philip to carry your message to a lost and hurting world. We love you. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.